Ephesians 4, verses 17 to 24 in your Bibles. As we, uh, on this first Sunday of Epiphany, pick up our series at part five. This is our fifth installment uh, of this series uh, entitled Reviewing Concepts, Reframing Worldviews, and Renewing Compassion. Would you say that with me? Reviewing Concepts, Reframing Worldviews, and Renewing Compassion. Ephesians 4, verses 17 to 24. With the Lord's authority, Paul says, with the Lord's authority, I say this. Live no longer as the Gentiles do, for they are hopelessly confused. Their minds are full of darkness. I want you to note this. If you if you write in your Bible, this is a good spot to underline or at least make note of a few things from this passage that I'll draw your attention to. First of all, verse 18, their minds are full of darkness. Notice that. They, they wander far from the life of God and from the life God gives because, now look at this, they have closed their minds and harden their hearts against him. They have closed their minds and hardened their hearts against him. So their minds are full of darkness. They've closed their minds and thus hardened their hearts against him. And then verse 19, they have no sense of shame. They live for lustful pleasure and eagerly practice every kind of impurity. But that isn't what you learned about Christ. Not how you learned the King, Paul says. That's not what Jesus Himself taught. Not what we've learned. If indeed you did hear about Him, verse 21, and were taught in Him in accordance with the truth about Jesus Himself, that teaching stressed that you should take off your former lifestyle, the old humanity. That way of life is decaying as a result of deceitful lusts. Instead, now note this, okay? So we've read their minds are full of darkness. They have closed their minds and hardened their hearts. Now watch this. Paul says, instead, let the Spirit... Renew your thoughts and attitudes. Or some of your Bible's translation may say, be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Let the spirit renew your thoughts and attitudes. Let there come a renewing of the mind. You must put on the new humanity, which is being created the way God intended it, displaying justice and genuine holiness. This isn't what many people expect to hear today, even in the church. Some of these statements that have been made in this passage and these thoughts and these declarations and this instruction and teaching that Paul says he's giving with the Lord's authority. 
It's not what we expect to hear, all this talk about the mind, about our thoughts, about our thinking. There's a persistent untruth which has made its way into the popular imagination in our day, even in the church. And it's the untruth that Christianity means closing off your mind, ceasing all serious kind of thought, and living in a shallow fantasy world divorced from the solid truths of real life. But that's not what Paul's saying here. This isn't, this isn't a matter of scholastic degrees and paper credentials, as beneficial as those are. It's a matter of heart and mind being open to the deeper, ever wider range of insight and imagination that comes with learning the King, learning Christ Jesus. And Paul says when we truly learn Christ Jesus, there will be a, a, a a depth of mind that comes, a richness of mind, a richness of thought, a purity, a wholeness of mind that will come. And so Paul is urging here that the foundational teaching of Jesus Himself, you remember Jesus Himself teaching so much about the heart and the mind. Mark chapter 7 is a good example for us. Paul is urging that this foundational teaching of Jesus Himself have its full effect in the lives of the Ephesians and in our lives. Being renewed in our mind. Let the Spirit renew your thoughts and attitudes. We're looking at reviewing concepts. Concepts that has to do with the mind. Our, our concepts that we have in our thinking. Reframing our worldview. That has to do with our mind. Renewing compassion. The heart. Of course, the mind is a springboard from our heart. And that's why Jesus spent so much time on these two uh, spheres of our being. Mind and heart. Reviewing concepts. Refra reframing worldviews and renewing compassion. We've been considering over these last few weeks some keys to living and loving in a broken world. I shared with you a few weeks ago that I want to put forth some keys as to how we do this. Of course, all of these keys that we've been looking at are engaged in partnership with the Holy Spirit. Notice Paul says, let the Spirit renew your thoughts and minds. It, there's echoes here of even Paul's words in Romans 12, verse 2. Be transformed in the spirit of your mind. And so I, I want to stress this for us. It's a partnership 
with the Holy Spirit in these keys that we're looking at. Understanding the heart of God. Discerning the Word of God. Those were the first two keys that we looked at. All of this has to do with a partnership with the Holy Spirit. Because it's that partnership with the Holy Spirit that is all important to our growth in this, in the life and look of love in a broken world. We cannot be, be doing this of our own human energy. These keys cannot be effectively employed by our own human zeal or energy. It, it, it won't work that way. And so now we come to this third key. In light of these things, understanding God's heart, discerning God's word. And then this morning, I need to review my concepts. I need to reframe my worldview. I need to renew my compassion. And really what I'm saying is, is what Paul is saying. I need to let the Holy Spirit do these things. Renew my thoughts and my attitudes. Review my concepts. Reframe my worldview and renew my compassion. My concepts and worldview need to frame a behavior that is based on the foundational teaching of Jesus, as Paul said. You didn't, don't live like the Gentiles. You didn't learn Christ the King that way. You, you didn't learn that from Jesus. No, put on the new humanity. Take off the old humanity, which is decaying and dying because of deceitful lusts. Put on the new humanity in Christ Jesus. And that affects our concepts, our worldview, our minds, our hearts. It frames a behavior that is based on His Word, His teaching. My compassion, my compassion needs to be fired with a frustration with myself rather than a frustration with the world for not being what they ought to be. What do I mean by that? I, I need to understand this. I cannot, you cannot, we cannot expect a culture and a society set against the Creator to understand our insistence that it acknowledge His will for human behavior. They don't get that. They're not even in that frame of thinking. Too many sincere Christians, especially in North America, suppose that the playing field of following Jesus is the same today as the pre-1960s when the historic traditions undergirding our value system had a measure of basis on God's Word. Now, that's not to say that everyone was a believer and a follower of Christ because they weren't. But we know that our value system then had some measure of basis on God's Word. 
it, it's been referred to as Christendom. The influence of the Scriptures, even in a day where not everyone was a follower of Christ, there was still uh, an effect of the Scriptures, though removed and though only in measure. I'm not saying everyone was an avid uh, individual student of the Scriptures. They weren't. But there was something within the fabric of society and culture then that was still influenced by the Scriptures. Our moral value system was still influenced. We no longer live in that kind of a day. That influence, Christendom and, and its influence on the, has, has died a long, slow death. To our dismay in many ways. But yet God is still very much working and moving and doing a new thing. Even in this day. Some people think that that pre-1960s world is still the case today, that, that we still have, as followers of Christ, the same grounds and context of appeal to the world and to our culture. Our forefathers believed in God. Canada has a heritage of, of a nation under God. The Scriptures are inscribed in the Peace Tower in Ottawa, after all. The Ten Commandments were in our classrooms for centuries, and we said the Lord's Prayer every morning at school. How many of you remember those days? No more. They no longer exist. Many of us, even if we were not followers of Christ, even if we were not faithful uh, uh, church attenders or engaged in a, in a church uh, tradition of any kind, we knew the Lord's Prayer. We prayed it every morning in school. Thank you, Philip, for leading us in it again this morning. This is not the world we live in today. And I know we like to go on that rant. And, and, and beloved, I, I agree. I'm not carrying an agenda in, in interest of those who oppose those values or that heritage. I'm just saying we have to get real. We don't live in that world anymore. Really, we need to have an epiphany in this regard on this Epiphany Sunday. That foundation does not exist anymore as a point of appeal. Now, I know some of you grew up in other nations, other countries, and perhaps it was different for you even than what I've just described historically. But the point is, is that the influence of the Christian world, the influence of Christendom over society and culture as a whole is no longer there. That foundation no longer exists. 
frankly, and it's important that we see this, it didn't exist when the Apostle Paul came to Corinth. It didn't exist when he came to Athens or Philippi or Rome. It didn't exist. It did not exist anywhere, really, for Paul in the ancient world. They had no place to come as followers of Christ. They had no place to come and tub-thump and say, it used to be this way. We're calling you back to what are righteous values. You'll not find that anywhere in the Scriptures because it didn't exist. The Scriptures do not say, hold up a grid of righteousness for the world to see and call them to meet your standard of holiness. The Scriptures don't teach us that. Make no mistake, beloved. We are indeed called to holiness and righteous living. But it is not, hear this please, it is not a holiness that we are called to in turn apply as a measure to the world. It is a measure we are called to apply to ourselves as we grow in the life and love of Christ. And the ultimate measure will be always in the Scripture how the love of God is manifest and becoming incarnate in us and demonstrated through our lives as we grow and mature in Christ and deepen in the renewing of our minds as we know His heart and His Word and His way, as we live the new creation way to be human, as we put off the old humanity, as our text says, and put on the new humanity in Christ, and as we follow through in this, we become living, life-giving epiphanies of Christ to the world. That is what we are called to. Not to hold up some standard of holiness and beat the world over the head with it and say, this is not the way you're living and you need to live this way. Come on, get with it. No, that standard of holiness in the Scriptures is for us to apply to ourselves. And as we give that ourselves to that measure and living by the power of the Spirit in that measure, we then become a living demonstration of the love and compassion and life of Christ to the world. Are you seeing this? And that is the love that will reach out to our cities. Our Vancouver region. And to the world. It reaches with a tenderness. And it reaches with a power. Not because it is mandating repentance on the basis of what you really ought to know and live better than, 
but rather it's calling for a change of mind about what is really going to make your life really work. And since you asked, as you're in conversation with your neighbors and co-workers, and since you asked, let me tell you about Jesus because He started to make my life work. And that's the way it works. As we live more and more, ever growing in the new humanity in Christ, new creations in Christ, as we live more and more into this, we become a curiosity to the world. And since you asked, let me tell you why that is as we share this life with the world. This national Christian heritage concept we're addressing as we talk about reviewing concepts, this national Christian heritage concept doesn't work in our current Canadian culture and society. Because our culture and society becomes the reflection of the deity it exalts. And that is not the God that we worship. And, and there are so many things that have happened as our society has exalted humanism's rule. Supposing that humankind is capable of its own salvation. And you can go through the continents of the world. Many of us, for the various places we point to as our home, our places of origin, you can go through all the continents of the world, the primary cultures and religious traditions of the world, including the Christian world, where there are more things to fault us over historically in the Christian world than perhaps we'd prefer to acknowledge. And that has been freshly brought to our attention in this last year, and particularly with all of our indigenous peoples' discoveries and the graves of children and our First Nations people. The, there is so much about our Christian history that we prefer not to even acknowledge. But loved ones, wherever religion comes to dominate, whether it be Christianity or some other form of world religion, wherever religion comes to dominate rather than the love of God and the truth of God. Wherever religion comes to dominate, there comes destructiveness and death. Just as there does in human philosophies. Beloved, in, in the 21st century North America, barring the impact of intercessory prayer and true revival in our land, barring the impact of that, intercessory prayer 
and true revival in our land. And how many would agree with me that it is worth interceding in prayer for true revival in our land? Yeah? How many will stand on guard for that? Make it a commitment. We must as the people of God. We, we want to pursue this passionately as individuals and as a church. But barring that, listen please, barring that, we have no legal basis to expect biblical morality to be enforced in our land. Just decide that. Because it's, it's not going to happen. Dispense with the notion and the idea that we are ever going to get an enforcement from our government of biblical morality by some sort of political system that's in place, the Christian Heritage Party or whatever it is, or some court decision, it's not going to happen. It didn't happen for Paul. It has not happened throughout church history. And secondly, it would be important for us to recognize in 21st century North America that we do have a, the democratic right of voice and vote to express our desire. And living in a free culture where we can do that, then do, please express it. All of us, young and old. I know there's come a, a, uh, an apathy and an indifference with voting, especially in the younger generations, although I believe that's changing slowly. But this is a privilege we have. So exercise that privilege, express it, but recognize that where you are expressing that is in the court of political appeal. And it is not in a court where you can expect any spiritual results, necessarily. Are you tracking with me here? And in most cases, probably not any spiritual results. Now, I don't want to digress here into the obvious of the limits of human capacities to govern with full effectiveness. The best governments, the best governments are incapable of achieving their most noble goals. We've seen that, haven't we, again and again. The best governments are not capable of achieving their most noble goals. And this isn't a matter of saying government is bad. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not against government. Thank God we have it. And we're called to pray for the government. Not criticize them, not slander them, not badmouth them. We, we, have a, we have the freedom to disagree and share differing opinions, of course. But we are called to pray for the government. 1 Timothy 2, 1-4. It's on the slide here for us, I believe. Will you say it together with me? Lift your voices and let's declare this. I urge you, first of all, to pray for all people. Ask God to help them. Intercede on their behalf 
and give thanks for them. Are you catching all this? This is very different than much of what we hear about our government these days, even in the church. Pray this way for kings and all who are in authority. Come on, come with me now. Don't, don't lose me. So that we can live peaceful and quiet lives marked by godliness and dignity. This is good and pleases God our Savior who wants everyone to be saved and to understand the truth. So we are called to pray for our government and give thanks for them and uphold them. The early church was apostolically called to pray for a government. Now remember this. These words are to us, but we, we, uh, they, are, they were written to an original audience by Paul. And that original audience had to deal with governments like Nero. And if you know anything about Nero... It makes our government seem like a walk through the park. And yet, they are called to pray for them. How much more are we called to pray? They were called to pray for a government that was corrupt from the ground up and for leaders who were in fact known to be homosexual in orientation and in their lifestyle. The Bible says we are to pray for them and give thanks for them and uphold them because God desires for all of them to be saved and know the truth. Please note that the tone of that call to prayer is a call not to pray with condemnation, but to pray with intercessory passion and compassion. That there would be peace in the land. That there might be evangelism as a result. Prayer and evangelism go very closely together. And this is the call of the church then, but also the church now. For you and I today. In this era of life, however, in our nation, we don't have a divine commission to win at politics. But we do have a divine commission to win the lost to Jesus and to make disciples of them. That is the central point of focus that we are called to understand as we live in an environment where I don't know and I would not wish it, but the gay pride activists lobbying may in fact ultimately win the day in the courts. I don't know and I don't wish it, but they may ultimately win the day and in the ballot boxes of our country. I don't know. Supposing they do, is the church helpless? Listen, the church is just finding itself. How many times has it been said, maybe you've heard this as well. I know I have often heard it, and, and, if, and if I'm really honest with you, I've even said it myself. Oh, to be like the New Testament church. 
Oh, to be like the New Testament church. Well, loved ones, in this regard, with this subject matter we're looking at right now, we're getting closer all the time. Our early church ancestors were light in the middle of an absolutely pagan culture. And it took three centuries, but by three centuries' time, they outnumbered the rest of them. Not by the power of the pen, not by protesting picket lines, not by blowing up clinics, not by vote, Watch this, but by the power of the love of God incarnated in their lives, demonstrated through their living, their attitudes, as the truth of God came from their lips. They had lives to back it up. Living and life-giving epiphanies of the light and love of God for the inbreaking of the kingdom of God in the midst of a pagan, godless culture. Think about it. There is something here for us. The summons to be a people of God, an agape people demonstrating the life and look of love in a broken world, calls me then to assess my attitudes, my concepts, my perception, my worldview. And in assessing these, as the Holy Spirit guides me, here's what I need to do. First, I need to learn how to be a good neighbor as well as a good citizen. And second, I need to be a faithful intercessor as well as a light-in-the-dark witness. Not just with my lips, but with my life. How can I be both? Here's the way. Here's the way I believe for us as, 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 we, as we juice down the essence of our passage today and what Paul is calling us to. And as we review our concepts and reframe our worldview and, and renew compassion all with the help and in partnership with the Holy Spirit. Here's the way. Regarding politics, again, vote. Involve yourself to the degree of your interest. And people have varied degrees of passion and concern. There's nothing in the Bible that argues against our serious concern and action. As a matter of fact, I think it's a serious point of neglect if you don't. At the very least, again, register and then vote with intelligence regarding the issues at hand. I'll say it again. It's a violation of our discipleship to not vote. Now that's putting it strongly, but I believe that's what God has called us to. You steward what you have been given. 
How many places in the world wish they had the liberties and privilege of vote and voice that we have here in Canada? How many places? Some of you perhaps have, have come from some of those places. Some of the people groups, our indigenous peoples right here in Canada, have not had those privileges. So being given that privilege, a Christ follower must steward that privilege as a gift of His grace to us. Not because we suppose we can get the kingdom to come by means of our provincial or federal government. It doesn't work that way. Beloved, please hear me. The kingdom of God is not coming based on whether we vote liberal or PC or Christian heritage. God is not waiting for the right party to get into office. Hello? He doesn't work that way. The kingdom does not work that way. But because there is something of a privilege that we have been given and we are called to steward it for the purposes of righteousness, to whatever degree we, we may find that opportunity, we must steward it faithfully, intelligently, wisely, discerningly. And beyond that, all the way to running for office. I know many serious Christ followers, fervent followers of Jesus that, that run for political office and serve in that capacity. Indeed, God raise up a mayor. God raise up a member of parliament. God raise up a prime minister from among your people, God. That's, that, that's indeed a worthy prayer. Let us come with this recognition regarding politics. There is action to take. But with this, we keep a proper perception. With this, we are called to intercede beyond the degree of our nature. Our nature is to be apathetic and, and indifferent and passive, especially as typical Canadians. Our nature is to suppose things to be beyond hope. And I don't mean hope. Even though some people would be beyond hope. I don't mean in that way. Our nature is to suppose, well, you know, doesn't the Bible say things are going to get worse and worse and then Jesus will come? And I want Him to come and get me out of here. So let everything get worse and worse. Who cares? I want out of here anyway. Paul says that's not what you learned in Christ. You did not learn to think that way in Christ. That's not what Jesus taught. Somewhere I read those words Occupy till I come. Do business till I come. Tur turn to somebody if you can. Shout across the room if you have to and tell them, uh, Jesus said those words. Jesus said those words. Jesus happened to say that. And what was Jesus talking about? Well, the context of those words have to do with stewardship. And how a business owner gave some of his workers different 
abilities and capacities, different talents, the scripture refers to it as, but it's, it's different amounts of finance even to invest, to be stewards of. I'm going away, he said, and while I'm gone, I want you to invest this. And Jesus was using that to draw analogy to the kingdom. Until I come, until I return, Jesus says, invest this. Make investments of the kingdom. Regarding our witness, regarding politics, involve yourself. Intercede for the nation. Intercede for our cities. Regarding your witness, examine your heart as well as God's Word as we've looked at it. And keep a heart for people. A heart of compassion. The heart of God for people. I can't take long on this, but I just want to raise a question for a moment to say and to help all of us. What has shaped my own attitudes? It's a good question to ask yourself. What has shaped my own attitudes? What do I wrestle with? I'm, I, I'm, I'm sharing personally now. What do I wrestle with when it comes to attitudes concerning the subject at hand, homosexuals? What is it that shapes my concepts, my worldview, my attitude in regards to that group of people? I think that for me, basically two things. I am tempted by fear over lost control, number one. On the one hand, economic control. On the other, educational control. Economically, I don't like being required to submit to another system of morality in the workplace. I don't like being told I have to employ people that live and live out loudly, proudly, dramatically, and deliberately accentuating a lifestyle that is perverse to my own value system. fear of lost control. I can consider someone that may happen to be homosexual. That is not the issue of contention as much as when it is a matter of a crusade that I am obligated to bow to. When it's a crusade, why should I have to hire them? I'm talking about what I wrestle with. That sense of loss of control that greatly impacts our attitudes. Another thing that impacts our attitudes is the same sort of thing in the field of education. I don't like being required to subject my children to a system that exposes them to either. Either the requirements to sit and study and possibly embrace another moral system because they're required to learn of it and its viability, which in fact is proven not to be viable over the long course of history 
and over the short run of a manifest impact in people if we study anything from the suicide rate to the obvious disastrous and painful reality of the global impact of HIV and AIDS. It's very clear that it is not a viable way of life. I don't like that my children have to be exposed to this for the sake of political correctness, we're told. Or the possibility of the recruitment of my children as advocates of this same system. Or the possibility of allowing the crusading homosexual to come and speak to my children. Talking about the crusading agenda here. Virtually, it's the equivalent of a religious system having the right to go in and evangelize for its cause in the classroom. I've discovered the things that I didn't like are the very things that the homosexual and others in our community perceive the Christian right to basically be wanting. Are you seeing this? The very things we don't want and we don't like with this group of people are the very same things often that we want ourselves for our own cause and our own agenda. To control the economics and control the educational system on their terms. But of course, since we are right and they're not, then wouldn't that be the best for everyone? Because we're the right ones, they're the wrong ones, so wouldn't it be best for all? But why should anyone believe that? If there is no knowledge of the love and light of God that they can see in our lives. Are you seeing this? We have fought for our way because we believe it's the right way but we have not backed up that way by the lives that we live and the light and the love of Christ in our lives being effectively and fruitfully demonstrated. So why should anyone believe that that would be the best way for all? If there is no knowledge of the light and love of God that they can see evidently, fruitfully in our lives, but only the fight for a place of power and control, and then they fight back. And my attitudes, my reactions are shaped by that fighting back. Are you seeing this? So a fear of losing control and a fighting for that and then the fighting back and how that shapes my attitudes and my perception and diminishes my compassion. And then secondly, this then creates an anger-born of fear. Influencers of my own concepts, an anger born of fear. It is deepened by the animosities raised by the militant advocates of the gay rights agenda. Again, crusaders, militant advocates. You've seen it on TV, just as I have. The annual gay rights parade 
the annual pride parade at such and such a city, whether it be here in Vancouver or some other city here in Canada. And what do we see? What does the media show us? We see the flaunting gay pride crusader joined without discernment to a great company of people who are homosexuals in the parade, most of whom are reasonably ordinary people who are simply saying, please just honor us as human beings. But it's the flaunting crusader that gets the coverage on the news. Yeah? Please understand, I'm not arguing for their agenda in what I'm saying. I'm making the point that I take my signals and my cues in my responses and my attitudes as a believer from the one who flaunts their deviant behavior and is an in-your-face, very much like the act-up intruder who comes into a meeting with their own agenda and refuses reasoning, but only shows up to cause division and create confusion. But here's the question I must ask. How representative are these ones, these militant advocates, these crusaders, how representative are they of the homosexual that may live next door to me or you? How representative are they of the homosexual that may be resident in our own families? Does that militant crusader flaunting their stuff on the television screen, do they represent? I don't think so. How representative is Louis Farrakhan of the Afro-American community? How representative, really? How representative are those trash-talking athletes of their larger body politic of Canadian citizens? How representative is the Bible-quoting cultist of a sound-minded, Bible-believing Christian? How representative? How representative is the superficial, spiritualistic individual preoccupied with an overriding concern to seem spiritual to everyone? How representative are they? Well, you say, not very. Any one of these is not really representative of the greater community in question. Are you seeing this? So we cannot allow that one representative to affect our perception of the whole community. In other words, how often is my attitude towards homosexuals shaped by the person that is not really the representative of that culture? And for one last time, let me say, I am not pleading for the rightness of that agenda, but for the acceptance of a heart cry of people. People. Many who are asking and agonizing within themselves over the question of why am I this way? And we don't know all the answers. 
For some, perhaps it was a lack of love. For many others, that was not the case. They grew up in very solid, stable, loving homes. Godly homes even, some of them. But yet, this is the orientation that they wrestle with, and they don't know why, and I don't know why. Was it conditioning? Were they born that way? I don't know, and science has not proven one way or the other. You say, well, why is it that they are that way? I don't altogether know. I don't have an answer. But how have we been? And what have we done? And what substitutes have we drawn upon? What attitudes have we maintained as Christ followers? Are they Christ-like ones? Are we looking at them the way Jesus would look at them? Beloved, on this first Sunday of Epiphany, we belong to the God of love. Agape. We are sent into this broken world for a little while to proclaim and to live and to demonstrate as living, life-giving epiphanies that we and every other human being belong to the same God of love. He is the author of all life. So let's respond to His invitation to come to Him and live life to the full. Life in alignment with Him and His love. Life that is putting off, taking off the old humanity and putting on the new humanity in Christ. And though we may not have all the answers to these kinds of cultural questions, we're not called to have all the answers. We're called to live the life. The life of love in a broken world. And the way we do that is not by, by beating on some pail and calling a people to a standard of righteousness that they know nothing about. We are the priesthood that is to pursue that standard in our lives. And as we do, we become light and love to the world. And as we demonstrate this love to the world, the world becomes curious. And, and, and it's, a, it's a slow process at times. Sometimes we wonder whether we're making any difference, whether we're having any effect on our neighbor next door. It's a slow process. But we're leading them slowly to the fountain of life and the author of love. Hello? Hello?